stores and $15 at the door. For more information, go to kpfa.org. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover Open Book. Good afternoon and welcome to Open Book, Friday edition of Cover to Cover. I am Malihir Azazan, hosting the program today. One of Cairo's oldest and most impoverished neighborhoods, Ain Shams, meaning Eye of the Sun, is also the title of an award-winning feature film by Egyptian filmmaker Ibrahim El Batut. At the center of the story is Shams, an 11-year-old girl, whose dream is to visit downtown Cairo, which she imagines to be as beautiful as the pictures in her English textbook. But her father Ramadan and her mother Hanan lack the money or the desire to make her dream come true. Even though Shams is the focus of Aina Shams, El Batut draws connections between residents of the neighborhood in their different situations in order to highlight various socio-economic and political problems in today's Egypt. Ibrahim Al Batut worked for 18 years as a war zone cameraman and a documentary filmmaker, covering more than a dozen wars from Kosovo to East Timor to Iraq. I sat down with Ibrahim Al Batut during his visit to San Francisco for the Arab Film Festival. I spoke with him about his experience as a cameraman in war zones and what kinds of censorship are Egyptian filmmakers faced with and how does censorship work in Egypt? Uh, the way it works in Egypt is that before uh, shooting a film, you have to uh, hand the script in to the censorship. They read it and then they answer you back within a, a couple of weeks, a month or two months. And then they either approve the script or tell you that there are parts that need to be changed. So if there are parts that need to be changed, you have to go and change them and go back to them again with a new script. And then if they approve it, you go to step number two, which is going to syndicate to make sure that all your cast and crew are syndicate members. And if that's okay, you go with the two approvals to the Ministry of Interior that gives you the permissions to shoot in the street. Otherwise, you get arrested. And after shooting the film and editing it, you go again to the censorship, show them the film, and if they have any comments, you will then need to change them and come back with a new version. And then they give you the permission to screen the film publicly. That's how it works. Um, your second feature film, I Know Shams or Eye of the Sun, you were writing the script as you were shooting the film on the streets of I Know Shams, which is an uh, impoverished old neighborhood in Cairo. How did you get around the censorship and how did you end up screening your film in Cairo? First of all, I didn't write um, a classical script for Ayn Shams. I had my, uh, what we call a scene breakdown, where you have the number of scenes you want to shoot, with their content, but not in a classical form of uh, script, a screenwrite. 
So I didn't go to censorship with, 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 with my papers because, first of all, I do not believe in this uh, system of acquiring permissions to start thinking. It's like very much against what I believe in. So I said, okay, I'm making a, an independent, no-budget film. I will take the risk and shoot without any permissions. And that's what I did. I had to choose rightly the time where I take my camera to the street. I had to uh, study carefully how long I can stay in the street shooting in order to avoid anyone coming and stopping us from shooting. And it worked at the end of the day. So if you knew that you had to have the permission of the censor bureau or board yeah. in order to be able to shoot your film and in order to be able to screen it in cinemas in Egypt, what did you think you are going to do with Aino Shams? Okay. You see, part of what I've learned in, in, in the 18th I've spent in, 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 in doing documentaries is that one needs to be extremely prepared, but yet one needs to deal with problems when they arise. So you cannot kind of create a problem ahead of time and think of a solution. What I needed to do when I was doing Anshams is to do a, a low-budget film with my friends and to have the freedom to do it with nobody coming and telling us if they are okay with it or not. I was never sure that um, maybe they wouldn't have not liked the idea of Anshams the way it was made and what it portrayed and how it, the stories it told. What mattered to me the most was first have a film cut in hand and then fight for it and since we have nothing to lose I guess that backed us a lot you know because we we're not risking big budget we were not risking we, we were risking our time the time of the of the talented people who trusted in uh, in the film and they were all ready for that by the way and Eno Shams is a story of an 11 year old girl whose name is Shams, and she goes to school and she always draws and writes about downtown Cairo that she wants to visit, and she depicts it as this beautiful place. Why did you choose her as the central character for Aino Shams? And what was it about that neighborhood that inspired you to make a film about it and about people who live there? What did you want to tell with this story? Let me tell you that if you go to any other neighborhood apart from Ain Shams, you find that the conditions are the same. Uh, Ain Shams is a neighborhood that, that has 3.7 million inhabitants. Yeah, it's a huge place. And of course it's overcrowded and it's impoverished. Facilities are very minimum there, whether it's um, water, electricity or health. So it's a really... It's a neighborhood that is really struggling and trying to make the best they can out of what they have. And they are not unique in that. We have many neighborhoods that are similar. Uh, let me tell you that we have 9 million people living in slums that are far, 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 far poorer than ancients. So I think this is our reality. And if, 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 if I had made a film about that, that has other characters, I don't think I would have been faithful to the idea I wanted to portray in that specific film. I want to say that we are really, that we really need to work right now if you want to get out of it. And that we have a lot to do. And that we cannot stay idealized like that, uh, saying and complaining that we are victims of a regime that is so oppressing and so corrupt. We need to do something. We need 
to work for our rights. It's um, nobody will come and offer us our freedom on a golden plate. One needs to go and sacrifice for that and work for that, so that things can happen. Things can change. We have been stagnating for the last 50 or 60 years, going down all the time. I think the only hope is that kids like Shams, when they grow up, and they need to ask for the rights. They need, I think, to do what we did not do. I don't think my generation or, or the previous generation has done enough for this country to be where it needs to be. When it comes to filmmakers and what film can do, become a mirror to the society, do you think there are other filmmakers or there are increasing number of filmmakers who are looking inward into Egyptian society and really reflecting and narrating and speaking about um, its problems, whether it's economic, whether it's social, whether it's political, whether it's gender. How do you see the Egyptian cinema evolving? The new technology which with, with a digital camera and very low budget, as you did, you can go out and make a film. So how do you see the evolution of Egyptian cinema? Right. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of involved in, the, in, in consulting for different independent programs for teaching film, filmmaking. So I have my hands on the situation right now in, in independent filmmaking in Egypt. And I can tell you that we have a good amount of young people trying extremely hard to make their short films with the means they have. And it's very promising. And I'm very optimistic that very soon those young fellows will be making their long feature films. Then we'll have a real movement of independent cinema in Egypt. And that's what I'm really hoping for and dreaming that it will happen very soon. And I'm very optimistic about that. So I want to go back in your career a little bit. And that's really what I wanted to spend some time with you and talk to you about. Before making movies, you were a war correspondent and a cameraman for 18 years in different conflict zones. How did you choose this path? Of course, the answer is in retrospect. Because I was marked by war in a very early age, uh, I'm born 1963 and I was born in Port Said in a, in a town small city that was um, that had to be evacuated after the 1967 war because um, Israel had occupied the east shore of the Suez Canal and we were right on the on the west coast west west shore which with with maybe a couple of hundred meters uh, difference between both shores so we had to evacuate the city and me and my family became a refugee and I was at the age of 4 and 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 war was somehow very mysterious to me. I never understood why I had to leave my school, why I had to leave my neighbors, why I had to leave my bike behind. And these questions were always on my mind. So I guess when I finished the university in 1985 and then had a chance to uh, to be in a company that serves networks and uh, foreign TV stations and making documentaries, first of all, I fell in love with the camera and one of my first assignments was the war in Iraq during the Iran-Iraq war. So I think what made me go to war zones and, and go again and again and again and again is a deep desire to seek answers of why... Answers to a very, in my opinion, naive question. Uh, uh, why do wars exist? And it's a question that I uh, could not and cannot answer till now. Wars still seem to me a very absurd form of behavior 
that we human beings are uh, conducting. So it still remains a, a mystery to me. And I think what, what pushed me to go to these wars was that need to find an answer. How did you see your role as a cameraman? I mean, what was that experience like being in a war zone, in a battlefield? Of course, the first experience in, uh, in Iraq was overwhelming and I, uh, I don't think I had the time to stop and reflect on that. But what happened is that a year later, exactly in, on the 13th of August 1988, I was in Ain Shams, the neighborhood, covering a police raid on the neighborhood. And the police was very brutal with, with the people and I filmed the police uh, shooting with live ammunition, tear gas uh, bombs on uh, civilians. And I was filming and uh, one of the policemen saw me filming so he shot at me to get the tape and I was injured in my arm. So I ran and I was saved by one of the people in Ainshams. And when I went to his flat, he kind of gave me first aid, told me, thank you for uh, doing what you're doing. It's very important that people see these pictures and it's very important for people to know what's happening to us. And that moment kind of made me feel in a way that what I'm doing has a certain importance to people. And I needed like three months to, uh, to heal and my, for my right hand to come back in, and function properly. And in those three months, I had enough time to reflect and think of what I want to do next. Do I really want to go in war zones and, and do more of that stuff or should I go and do a normal job? And I chose to to go to more war zones simply because I felt that maybe these pictures will bring change somehow. But after 18 years I found out that films and pictures do not bring, bring change. Wars will continue to happen. We will continue to have wars in different areas for different reasons and we never run out of reasons to make wars and I guess we need like a moment where we collectively reflect on what's happening and, and really think that uh, a war happening thousands of miles away from us is definitely affecting us whether we like it or not. This knowledge needs to be, needs to sink in people's consciousness and they, they need to really think more about that for things to, to change. Once I interviewed an Iranian journalist who worked in Iraq for four years and she told me that a lot of journalists who cover wars they suffer from post-traumatic syndrome and it's not discussed that much because we always think of journalists as being quite objective and separated from the subjects that they are covering but she was saying that that's not true I read somewhere that you said this as well once in an interview you said it's easy to film what you see I can film your writing anyone can but how many people can really capture your soul to do that the person in front of you has to feel who you are you have to form that bond with them how did you make that connection and how did it impact you as a person? Mm -hmm. In all my, my assignment I used to, uh, to stay for long periods of time in, uh, in those uh, war zones and, and for me to be able to really portray the people in front of me I had to be one of them you had to, uh, by living with them, by being there, by trying to understand what's happening, by... Uh, one thing that kind of always stays with you, that always stayed with me, is that you always live with the guilt that you have made it, you know? You've, uh, you've been with people who later on died, but you've made it safe back home. You've been with women who later on were raped, but you made it back home. Like, I was injured twice in my career, and the second time was in Bosnia in 1993 and because I was working for German TV 
I only stayed after my injury in Bosnia for 10 days and then I was medevaced to Germany. During those 10 days after my, my injury, uh, I was in a military hospital in the middle of Bosnia and I've seen many Bosnian coming in the hospital injured by shrapnels, by bullets, by uh, mortars. And to be honest, their injury was far more dangerous than mine. I had a broken femur and they didn't have the chance of, of, of being medically evacuated to any other country for them to receive treatment. So you always have this kind of guilt that even if you get injured as a journalist, you'd be okay. So what am I saying that? I'm saying that to tell you that one tries to be as much connected to his subject as possible, but yet you always know that at the end of the day, if anything happens to you, apart from being killed, of course, you'll be kind of safe. So there is this this double kind of double standard of trying to make your job while trying tr while, while remaining as much uh, keeping a distance as possible, but yet you cannot stop yourself from being involved. Because I don't think you can write or uh, make a film about someone that you don't feel a connection with. You know, otherwise you'd be kind of have like a voyeur kind of status and not a filmmaker or a writer. And for me it was important to, to live the situation. So when I was in Bosnia, I stayed there for five years. And one thing that happens when you are in a war zone is that you can easily create a link or a bond with the person in front of you. Because you both know that maybe this is your last moment ever on earth. Maybe the next bullet is yours, maybe the next mortar is yours. So you either create a bond or you don't. So it doesn't take much time for you to kind of connect to people when, when you're all in danger of losing your lives. I think the presence of, of the camera uh, creates a magical, a magical moment that defies analytical, analytical explanation, but I'll try to, to give you an example. I was once with, a, with German TV, we were doing a story about women who were uh, systematically raped in the war and who had a kind of a safe haven where they were living now to be treated psychologically after the trauma. And we've been working with a doctor who was treating those women. That doctor, in an interview, all of a sudden broke down and told us that she herself was raped and that she never told her husband and that uh, she does not understand why she's telling the camera right now that she was raped. And I don't know why she told, I don't know why she told her that. So it was a moment where I think, I think because she lived with us the experience of discovering what happened to those women through a camera and through uh, making a film, uh, she has seen things in a different light and she understood that putting the fact bluntly in front of the camera can in a way maybe serve one soul one day. It's like putting a message in a bottle and throwing it in, a, in the sea. And this is what happens when you make films in these, in these conditions. If you're really not going there to make a job or to get a prize, if you're, not, if you're working from the heart, not working from the ego, and there's a huge difference, you know? I've met a lot of people going there uh, trying to prove that they are brave, they've made stories in war zones and stuff, and usually the stories are very weak. Actually, that takes me to my next question. The yeah. um, U.S. has been engaged in two occupations. But this war has been very, very sanitized. We don't get to see the bloodied bodies. Yeah. And during the Bush administration, there was a gag order on even filming flag-draped coffins of American soldiers coming to United States. So you worked as a freelance cameraman and filmmaker, and you sold your films 
to Channel 4 to ABC and Afghanistan to ABC and ITN. Was there a time that you were told your footage was too graphic to show? Yeah, of course. There were many times, like in Somalia, for instance, like in Iraq. No, pictures you see on, 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 on TV are very, uh, I think, in a way, uh, I can say, manipulated with or, or changed. And what you see is not, is not the whole truth. What you see is only part of, of, of the truth. And, and there, are many, there are many layers that are not at all mentioned or explained in all coverage. Even the time of, uh, of breaking the news and putting them on air and when to put them and what to put them and how to call them and what to call them. These are all tools to manipulate facts that the viewer back home has no clue about. There is not one reason why this last war happened in Iraq. I mean, they have claimed countless times of... Saddam obtaining weapons of mass destruction. They have been there now for almost seven years and did not find one gram of weapons of mass destruction. So it's built on, a, on an illusion, you know. Uh, there was, different, there was a different, different motives for making that war. And I think that the majority of, of the people who paid for this war, whether by money, by taxpayers, or by souls of their kids who have been killed there, or by soldiers who lost their limbs and by soldiers who, who lost their minds. There are generations who have been ha harmed by this war that was justified by wrong reasons. And now those who were responsible for this war are far gone. And there will be nobody to ask. So you see how ridiculous the whole thing is? We are turning into a vicious circle of, of lies and of manipulation. And like I said in the beginning, if, if the human race does not, does not wake up one day and understand where we are standing, we will be going to, at that end, we'll, having, we'll be having a big catastrophe very soon. In August 2003, when the UN, uh, when the UN building was uh, bombed in uh, Iraq, we were, uh, we were right there. And, uh, of course, we were always stopped by the army, the American army, not to go past certain points so that we could not see what's really happening behind those explosions. They were claiming it's for our security, but I think it was for more, because I, we, we managed to kind of get some shots of soldiers being totally or seriously injured. I think the flow of these pictures pouring in through TV to the States would have, in a way, contributed to this war to stop earlier. But they want to control how long this war can carry on. If you, if you were in Iraq and did not comply with the regulation of the war coverage, you would have stopped, been stopped as a journalist right away. Like even when we did the, the, the film about mass, mass graves in Iraq, that film was a very clear document on how in 1991, when George Bush kind of allowed the uprising to happen in the south, in the north, in the south by the Shiite, and then in the north by the Kurds in Iraq, and when those people started the uprising, and later on, all of a sudden, the American um, government allowed Saddam to use his helicopter to crash the uprising. And those are the people who were later on collected by Saddam after being crushed and put in the desert in holes and then shot at and buried under the sand. 2003, we had a chance to uncover that. You know, it was very clear that those innocent people were asked to uprise in 1991 then later Saddam was allowed to, to, to stop them and, and kill them and nobody said anything about them 
And even the film we made was shown, I think, after midnight on TV because uh, it was an anti anti-war film that didn't, they didn't want to put in the foreground of events so that people would not start to ask questions. So I personally believe that media is like a huge machine serving the purpose of the politicians and whenever there is a story that contradicts what the mainstream politicians want to happen, it would be obscured, it would be stopped, it would be manipulated. Yani, I'm not naive to think of a conspiracy theory, but, but, but there is things wrong happening on the ground during all the wars I've seen in my entire career. But if you put it on in the news every hour, all the time, then people see it. But they only give you what they want you to see. Of course now with the, with the internet and YouTube and stuff, things can happen in a different way. But this is what happened. This is what happened. You worked as a freelance cameraman. Yeah. So you chose where to go and yeah. who to give your footage and who to sell it to. What are the advantages of and disadvantages of being a, a freelance? Because many, many news outlets are closing down their foreign bureaus and yeah. cutting down on the number of journalists in different countries, even in Iraq and Afghanistan for yeah. different reasons. Of course, being a freelance is a very big risk because economically you don't know if you'll have work or not. If you are in a war zone and you and, and you get injured as a free and you're not working for someone, then you really you're really in trouble because uh, the expenses of medical evacuation and treatment in hospitals are extremely expensive. You can if you are a freelancer, you can end up maybe not treated properly medically if you're injured. I was very lucky that I was injured when I was working with uh, with big TV stations. So at least five of my colleagues were killed while working. And sadly, I think that their efforts were in vain. I don't think it was uh, as this job was worth dying for. Though I thought at the beginning it was, but now I can clearly tell you it's, it's not worth dying for. But don't you think it's important to really document mm. wars mm. and tell those stories? No, I don't think that it's important to document war and tell the stories simply because nothing happened with this material. You can document forever wars happening and all that will happen is people will watch switch on their TV stations to football matches and take the dinner and go to sleep. So, uh, no, this material is useless. This material is there for this war to carry on happening. I have not seen one film that changed or stopped a war. This is, this is my conclusion after, all, after those 18 years. I thought, or I believed, back when 1987, 1988, that uh, those pictures were important. But in 2004, I discovered that they were not important. Whether you see them or not doesn't make a difference because if you, if you as a viewer see those pictures and take an action, then they would matter. But those films are, are being then consumed, consumed, literally consumed by viewers and no one moves, no one does anything to change the situation. So how, why are they important? Why is it important to see what's happening in Iraq? Why is it important to see Saddam Hussein being hanged in front of your eyes? Why is it important for, for you to see the Palestinian father holding his four dead kids with holes in their hearts? You saw it, and, and wh what did you do with it? Nothing. So in my opinion, it's not important. It's not important. I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. Whatever the amount of pictures you put on air or on new or in newspapers or in, in in websites, they are merely used for consumerism. It's like the food you eat. It's like the water you drink. It's like the Coca-Cola that you are um, uh, hypnotized by.
Is that why you left covering the war zones and moved into making feature films? Yes, that's exactly why I left uh, making, going to war zones and, and making fiction films because I think uh, viewers have become numbed or fatigued or indifferent or and uh, one needs to work on a different form of communication one needs to to work on a, on films that maybe can stay longer not for us i don't expect our generation on the one to come to make any change in this world i think we have all been contaminated by what we have lived and uh, the hope in those who come afterwards and I think the films we make right now are like uh, uh, landmarks for those to come afterwards and, and check that in 2008 this film was made and this is what they have reached and and take it from there and, and move things to, uh, to be better Ibrahim El Batut is an Egyptian filmmaker his feature film Ain Shams was screened in this year's Arab Film Festival, which continues through this Sunday. For more information, please visit Arab Film Festival's website at aff.org. I am Malihera Zazan, and thanks for listening to Open Book. This is KPFA 94.1 FM in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno, and on the web at kpfa.org. Please stay tuned for free speech news coming up next. Racism, storms, corruption, our people struggle on. Join us for Filipino Our Story, Sunday, October 25th, 6.30 p.m. on KPFA, with a spoken word tribute to our beloved Manong Al Robles. Bainihan New Poets, Community Health Issues, a Human Rights Update. Remember Asin? We bring you an interview with Angkupong Pendong. Binay and Pinoy artists rarely heard even on KPFA, as well as new sounds from native elements and much more. You can find us on